Let's do it. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Ultimate Podcast. I'm here with my co-host as always, Mitch Kurtz, and we are Hello. thrilled to have on the potty today, Dr. Zaina Chima from the Sunflower Clinic, or Cheems, as Mitch likes to call her. <laughs> um, how that, you doing, that Dr. Zaina Cheems? What would you like for this one? Uh, you can call me Cheems or Zaina. So. <laughs> Thanks, more affection and warmth. Yes. It's that that James actually. Oh, is, the James, my mistake. I would say. Well, the James. I'd be interested to know how you came to be prescribing cannabis. What your sort of background is as a doctor. When you were in med school, were you always thinking about the exciting day when you would be able to prescribe <laughs> cannabis to people, or is this something that came in a little bit later? Um, well, it's a good question. It's. Look, I mean, essentially what happened, the truth is that my son um, wanted, he said, mom, I want to go live somewhere with um, coconut trees. And I was like, you know what, babe, it's you and me. Let's do it. So I quit my job uh, in private general practice in Bondi Junction and applied to be the island doctor uh, at the Cook Islands. Um, and it was just coming up to Christmas and I did not get any response back. Um, so then kind of thought, okay, well, I wanted to pivot, so what do I want to do? Um, so I started working with athletes, retired athletes, uh, some amazing individuals who unfortunately had really, you know, damaged their joints by age 45 and were in quite a lot of pain after they retired. And they had come to me asking for a bit of an integrative approach. So obviously we did, you know, all the, all the good nutritional medicine stuff. And then a few of them started asking for CBD oil. And I had never prescribed it at that time, um, but they'd said, a few of my patients had said they'd gotten it from overseas and it was really beneficial. And when I looked into it, I thought, hey, could be anti-inflammatory, might be worth having a go at it. So that's how I got into it. I can go to my medical school because I think you've asked like three questions there. Yeah, sorry. I usually bundle quite a few in, but just to clarify, so you didn't end up going to the Cook Islands? No, they didn't accept me. Oh, I feel like it was some bureaucrat who let it slide and like a few months later it was like whoops yeah yeah totally doctors there are there any other like coconut bearing islands that we were under consideration or coconut well, bearing <laughs> islands <laughs> back to um your the second part of your question andrew because in medical school i always wanted to work with doctors without borders right so i always saw myself as living in you know remote non-urban environments and um so that's kind of the space it came from uh what i ended up doing then was just doing a lot of remote uh, australia work in you know broken hill and forbes and i was flying out every second week doing the emergency stuff then um but with my six-year-old that kind of i mean that's a whole other thing um mm. You know, I'd like to maybe touch on um, how locums can kind of help close the the gap um, in service delivery in uh, in Australia. Well, let, let's jump right into that because that that is a fascinating topic, and I, I have to say that you know, from my limited knowledge about it, I mean, I, I know that they try to incentivize young doctors to go out to these rural parts in Australia, but the uptake, I'm told, is still. There's always a need. Um, what was your experience like? You know, what, what kind of communities were you serving? Yeah, so look, I mean, it's a very complex issue. So in terms of the feeder into it, so when you, if, we, if we're going to break down the issue, so 
when kids go to medical school, there are certain programs like scholarships and rural streams that will pre-select people that are likely to go on and do longer term work. I went to Western Sydney Uni and we had this amazing initiative where we got to choose to go to Lismore or Bathurst for the year. Um, I think it was in fourth year medical school. And I was like, yeah, cool. I want to do rural work. So I'm going to do that. And then we, and that was very useful, but I, I my GP mentor, my country mentor, absolutely amazing guy. And this gives you a, an idea of what country doctors really do. So he would be running the anesthetics at the hospital. Um, and then he'd be flying out to Kananara. Um, he would be, you know, running a GP practice. He'd be teaching us. He, his skill set was so broad that he could administer anesthetic for a C-section or a trauma patient. And he had, I don't know if he did a pubic symphysotomy. Now that was very impressive for me. What that means is when, yeah. a, when a baby gets stuck, right, you can do a C-section, but when right. they get really stuck and that doesn't work and it's like, baby's going to die. Mum's going to die. There's this really rare procedure where you actually, um, pull the pelvis apart like surgically and so he did that i can see your face mitch oh yeah that, but I, I just, i'm not good with this probably why i'm not mitch, a doctor you, you, mitch you will never have to have this procedure just just the that. thought of it though yeah it just needs uh, i need a high dose of thc sorry right. <laughs> well i mean I, you can just stop my inner my inner like no 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 no, no. We, i was just like oh my god this is the kind of doctor i want to be but what he said to me, because I was kind of torn between, look, I've grown up in Sydney. I don't know if I, how long I can live in the country and do this amazing work that I'd want to do. And he said, the future of bridging the gap is more urban doctors taking up locum roles. So you just basically, you partner up with a, say, you know, um, a GP in Forbes and you say, hey, you know what? You can go and have a Chrissy break and I'm just going to cover you for those two weeks every year. Or you set a time and that allows our rural workforce to get some relief, right? And mm. some regular, um, you know, support. And the other thing is telehealth. Sorry. The problem with recruitment, right, is recruitment is done through recruiting agencies largely, right? Um, and what they're doing is, I'll give you an example. So when I was recruited to go and run the emergency department in Broken Hill, I was on the phone and I was like, okay, so I have trained in a major trauma center, but that's been supported by lots and lots of people. What am I going to be required to do? And the person on the phone couldn't really tell me anything because they weren't medical. So when I was speaking to my colleagues here, they were like, Broken Hill. They're like, you know, you, you can't go out there and do emergency there because you don't have the skills of a, an emergency specialist. And for a while that did put me off, but I realized then that, yes, of course, they're absolutely right. I don't, I'm not an emergency physician, I'm a GP, but only 15% of our emergency departments in Australia have an emergency specialist. All of the rest, so 85%, my maths right, are run by health workers, nurses, GPs. Yeah. And that kind of, I mean, if I'm, that kind of flows into my approach to Sunflower Clinic, which I started after I left the, the ED stuff. We're in the middle of a tsunami. They're really, we're at breaking point with the mental health um, crisis. I, I don't know if I'm just in this space now, but the amount of 
youth suicide and really um, devastating effects on people's mental health that we're seeing post COVID um, and with you know, with our general practice and psychiatric system being overwhelmed is quite uh, immense. And I think um, what I learned from that is that GPs who may not be comfortable like running an emergency department sometimes have to do it when they're in a crisis situation. And I would also say that I'd encourage more GP colleagues to really take that step, be uncomfortable, but know that, you know, something is better than nothing. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a really interesting point you raise because I, I think that there's a tendency for people to maybe either be boxed in by their institutions or even by themselves. But, you know, doctors effectively come out of med school. They might pick a specialisation, which I, I know GP is itself a, a specialisation. And the idea that, as you described, this guy going to Kununurra and doing this emergency, <laughs> crazy emergency procedures... This is, you know, uh, I, I guess people are more prepared to, because they have to, to, to take on more responsibility and broaden their skill set, um, you know, and, and become the ultimate generalist, really, um, by, by having those experiences. And so, you know, I guess thinking about that in the context of um, the mental health crisis, if we only have the scope of each person's role in that mental health system being you know, rigorously defined and being sort of immovable, then, you know, from the patient's perspective, I'm guessing they sort of just get passed around between crisis assessment teams and then, um, you know, triage nurses and all of this. And it, it is more useful if we break down a lot of those barriers and people are prepared to expand the the scope of, of healthcare services that they provide so and it sounds like you've really um you know hit your straps in that respect following your locum experience so that's that's really wonderful yeah no i agree with everything you said yeah totally yeah. is I'm, the I'm, um i'm curious just because it's something that um i've only recently started to to, to learn about, but this this idea of bush medicine is that anything that you encountered on on any of your your trips out into some rural parts of New South Wales or elsewhere? Do you mean as in um, primary response, like treatment on site of like tractor victims or stuff like that? Do you mean pre-hospital medicine? Or? Yeah, so pre-hospital medicine. I'm just learning more and more about... Um, or, or do you mean how like cannabis grows in a bush? <laughs> No, I mean, the sort of the this idea or this concept of bush medicine in um, certain Indigenous communities and this continuing use of it, is that something that you had any contact with during any of your locums? No, I was very much in the system, right? In the hospital yeah. system. Mm. Yeah. Okay. I'm just curious because I know we've we've had a lot of different doctors on the show and we've had some, let's say, older doctors who maybe, um, you know, during their their studies um, and, you know, training for in medical school weren't really taught about the endocannabinoid system or anything like that. You obviously being one of the younger doctors on the show, um, was that something that was, you know, brought up when you were studying? Was the endocannabinoid system and, and some of this stuff touched upon or was it kind of was it glazed over was it not there at all was it taught in depth I'm, I'm not sure no so it wasn't taught at all and the reason for that is um what I got told in medical school is that medical knowledge doubles every seven years 
really every seven years and that was pre like the technology you know tech revolution right so it's exponential um number one number two i got told uh, told that it takes 17 years for research to translate into clinical practice and thirdly the function of medical school is to basically teach you the basic sciences teach you the skill of diagnosis and let you understand pathology or disease. That's the function. You can't, there's five years there, right? Mm. It takes, it takes 30 years to master something. So no. Is the answer. <laughs> okay. Cool. I'm glad for clearing that up. So, but we, what you're saying is if we take the fact and, you know, the research would be starting to be done in Australia now on cannabis or it is, um, but basically what we've had legalization since the end of 2016, so maybe say 2017, 2034 is what you're saying for it to become, you know, a widespread type of practice is, is probably the timeline that we're looking at. Possibly, but what does that mean? Does that mean we're not going to be able to deliver excellent care or have um, specialists in the field that can scale therapy? No, I don't mean that. I mean, from when you're just kind of, you know, uh, going to your regular doctor and be like, hey, doc, CBD. And then they're like, yeah. the hell's that? No, that's just pot that, that you know, that's not good. Or, or not even maybe I just have to refer you to somebody who knows more than me, yeah. but just like, oh, yes, no, no, we can get you some THC because you're suffering from this type of pain and, and we can help you out. Or, you know, it could be psilocybin by then. But, but yeah. in, in terms of um, cannabis, if you're thinking about that 17-year kind of arc, um it's i so guess the, yeah the 17 year arc is when you know dd Miri or somebody in some lab somewhere finds a receptor that is targeted by a cannabinoid and goes oh my god this could actually be anti prostate cancer like for that to actually then get to doctors using it that's 17 years right yeah that that's actually taking science and making and infusing it into the art of medicine and delivering it to the patient, right? That what we're talking about is awareness, de-stig- like destigmatizing a therapy and coming up with the appropriate referral channels, right? So it's this, it's the same as like when you have a patient who you go, this patient really needs, you know, psychotherapy or this patient really needs to see a gynecologist. I think that's the kind of awareness we're going to have is like, you come and see your GP and your GP will be like, oh my God, you have chronic pain. Certainly you've got, you know, 80% of people with chronic pain will have significant um, psychiatric comorbidities or stress or anxiety. I think this is definitely a good treatment for you. I can't do it, but three of my colleagues in my practice can, or Mm. I'll refer you to da-da-da-da. That's how it all kind of happened, I think. Yeah, and I, I would think just on that 17-year arc, I mean, it usually it's, you know, a company makes that discovery in the R&D lab, registers the patents, mm. puts out a publication with preliminary, you know, positive findings about efficacy for that particular molecule to treat this. It's all so conservative. And then, you know, it might be approved on a limited basis, yeah. Um to treat one to, to, to just treat that condition and then there's the off-label use by you know doctors and and just that process of pbs catching up to subsidize something for a broad range of indications i think is um is what i'm i'm 
sort of starting to see will, will be what takes considerable time. And it's further made more difficult by the fact that we're dealing with plant medicines that have multiple compounds. So being able to isolate that a particular compound within cannabis medicine is indeed the active that is, um, you know, creating a good result for someone's condition is, is, is made, made more difficult. Can I just say something on that point? So I think it's kind of two schools of thought. So in our very, you know, technologically advanced, um, I guess, modern medical system where we do rely on um, very targeted advanced therapies against one molecule, yes, we're going to have that problem. But I feel like if we go back and really look at medicine more as um, an art, I think what we've lost is the art of being a clinician or the art of being a physician. Essentially, you're, you're a scientist, right? And um, basically, there are, four, there are four pillars of medical ethics, right? Do no harm, non-maleficence, uh, beneficence, um, justice, and something else. Oh, and autonomy. And the way I view being a doctor is that is my circle that I practice within. And I do believe that I have the, you know, the prerogative to discuss with my patient their, you know, issues and their problems and come up with a very tailored um, treatment plan. And I think that is the way a lot of GPs are moving. A lot of integrative doctors are moving. And the interesting thing about a plant medicine is you can use it in that way, right? You can use it in that way because you're not targeting one molecule. The therapeutic range is broad. The toxicity is low because of that. Um, so I think I went on. I think I went on. It was very convoluted. My point of, hang on, give me a second. What I was trying to say was with plants, it's actually easier to um it's actually it actually gives you more license as a doctor to be creative right mm -hmm. so when i get given a plant so let's say if i get given you know some dried herb i now am not being told by a pharmaceutical company that this is going to help patient x sitting in front of me with severe osteoarthritis in both legs who can't get up in the morning so i've got so i don't have that told to me what I do have is I can jump on the internet. I can do a search of the literature. I can read case reports by fellow doctors who've said, you know, 50-year-old woman, severe rheumatoid arthritis, three-month trial of, you know, um, whatever, and that helps. So I think what I feel the benefit of plant medicine is there aren't those strict boundaries, right? We just, the strict boundary is keeping your patients safe and reducing suffering, right? Yeah. So if you balance those two, I feel like um, I, I guess my hope is that a lot of my colleagues would step forward and work in a space where they maybe there is uncertainty in that space. Right. Yeah. Um, but there's also a lot of benefit to patients if we can kind of take that upon ourselves and not practice so defensively and worry about, you know, litigation and things like that as long as we really focus on the principles of keeping the patient safe giving um, and giving them some relief from what they're you know suffering from rather than I, turning them away yeah i have to though just speaking on behalf of all lawyers which i'm sure they'd be very comfortable with me doing um, i feel like there has to always be a role 
for medical negligence litigation. I mean, how how else are we going to you know keep our profession afloat? <laughs> no. um, sorry, no. Uh, just to no. I, I think I think from that though, um, it, it sounds like, and I, I think this uh, in an, a lot of times. Cannabis toes the line between that kind of Western and Eastern medicine feel, at least the way people, you know, kind of experience it. It's almost like it's got that side of it. We're now seeing that is is backed by the literature and we're seeing that the studies come out to support that it's, you know, anti-inflammatory or antifungal or whatever, um, different anti-emetic or whatever the study says on that particular indication. But we've also got this kind of conventional wisdom that's been passed down from generations, like when you're, you got this strange auntie that tells you, you got an earache, put some garlic in your ear or something like that. Like there's that, there's that, that plant medicine, uh, which is like something that people figured out by a kind of trial and error originally. And, and there might be some merit to, you know, certain compounds in, in the garlic having X effect. You know, it's not the same as getting a Pfizer backed uh, drug for sure, but there, there, there is something to it. Let's say or like chicken soup when you get a cold or something like that. You know what I mean? Um, so, so I feel like it toes that line well. And I, I think you do find that it has that kind of science meets uh, creative element. I, I feel at least the way doctors describe it, almost like I have a, a, a background in audio engineering, which is very much, you know, scientific. It's very much about certain waves hitting you at certain frequencies, uh, doing X and Y and Z. But the way you interpret, the way you manipulate those frequencies has a creative element to it. So you can create something that's very different, though you both have a sound understanding uh, to somebody else, though you both have a sound understanding of the science behind it, if that makes sense. So a sound um, understanding. Oh, I yeah. see what you did there. Oh, that was good. Yeah. Thanks. Um, <laughs> um, in, in saying that, I'm, I'm very curious where, where the, the name Sunflower Clinic came from. Could you... Um, <laughs> Um, yeah. Do you want the honest <laughs> <laughs> No, I want you to lie to us. <laughs> so, um, it's my spirit flower. Can I say? Yeah. Oh. So sunflowers basically, you know, they reflect the light of the sun. They, you know, reflect the truth. And um, my cousin actually had a recurring dream of me as a sunflower. And then I started, you know, when someone says something random to you like that, and then I just started seeing sunflowers everywhere. And I was like, I guess the hippie in me was like, it's my spirit. <laughs> and like, you know, it makes people happy. So I thought sunflower clinic. Isn't there something also about sunflowers that they turn to each other? I'm, I'm trying to remember what that is. Yeah, I think when the sun's there, they turn to the sun. And when it's cloudy, they turn towards each other. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Nice. It's like right? kind of like the endo kind of <laughs> trying to tie yeah, it in. I was, um, yeah. No, that's brilliant. But uh, I love that. But in in, um, in more kind of practical terms, you're, you're, you're kind of more geared towards mental health. Is that right? Yeah. So, I mean, I have a few hats. I still have my GP emergency appointment at Forbes and, you know, to fly out there. And I work um, also in standard general practice here in Sydney. But what I found was that my mental health patients really needed more care, more time and I couldn't like authentically step into that space and, you know, help in that problem without creating the infrastructure for that. So standard general practice, it's very hard, not only because you have 15, you know, 20, 30 minutes, but because it's cognitive switching, right? So I'm dealing with, 
sometimes a cancer, sometimes an immunization, and then you have to switch gears and create space while you're running late for someone who really needs your time um, to work through, you know, mental health struggles. So that's why I started Sunflower Clinic. It's kind of my vision of how, um, how general practice mental health care should be delivered. And it's also because I'm an integrative GP as well. Um, we do, I do nutritional medicine there. So everything from um, doing, so I'm, I'm a big believer in your physical health impacting your mental state. I think everybody mm. believes that now. Um, and a lot of times I've had patients who basically have been really, really iron deficient or really, really low vitamin D. And it's just made their depression so much worse. I've had a few patients, you know, after having their iron corrected, who've said it's like life changing. So what I like about sunflower is I can do all that. I can do the comprehensive full body medicine. And then, you know, if that, if my patient wants, we can sit there and just do a counseling session. I obviously do, you know, cannabis treatment there as well. Um, so it just, it's like a free, it's like a very um, free form tailored boutique mental health, general practice, um, sort of environment that I wanted to create. Interesting. That's, that's so, right. So what, um, what, uh, I'm just curious, what would a, you know, a new patient coming to, what would a, a typical patient look like? I know you can never say, you know, you, you, as yeah. you said, you're jumping hats all the time, but in terms of what, what's a, if you could give us maybe an example of the type of patient you might see. Um, yeah, that'd be great. So I see, um, I usually see patients who've gone to a lot of different people who don't have a clear diagnosis, but have been suffering, you know, from depression for 10 years or patients who've had a lot of compounded childhood trauma. Um, and now they don't understand why they're reactive or they're impulsive or why they're irritable. Um, I see a lot of patients who are very high functioning, but have severe debilitating anxiety um, that they've been hiding for a long time. You know, some of them are um, everything from executives to mums to teachers. Um, so I see a lot of people who actually quite, whose mental illness or state is making them quite sick. And I, I don't, I see more of that. I see more people who present with severe depression, severe anxiety. I see less people who are well, but just need a bit of counseling. I see less mm. of that. Um, and I think by the time they get to me, um, I'm seeing a lot of people with bipolar disorder and PTSD. And I think that's what those symptoms are that are kind of coming through. For some of those patients, do you, I mean, you talked about the, uh, the Hippocratic Oath before. Um, what, what do doctors make of commonly prescribed drugs for people with mental health issues, you know, I'm, I'm sort of thinking here of SSRIs and, and other classes of drugs in that ilk. When those drugs, which I might add are sort of registered and approved by the TGA and on the, the yeah, the register of therapeutic goods, when, when they carry side effects like this may cause suicidal ideation or the, is, have we got a problem? in terms of trying to square that with the Hippocratic Oath? I think the problem is that for 50 years, we've, in our doctor's bag, we've had like 
two things, you know, tranquilizers, antipsychotics, maybe benzos, SSRIs, SNRIs, right? Mm -hmm. So when you are sitting there with a patient in front of you who's suffering and you only have these three things, what, what do you do, do? right? So yeah. I think the, the key is that we really need innovation in mental health treatment. And I think we're there, right? I have some of my patients I've referred for transcranial magnetic stimulation. Some people say that's changed their life. You know, yeah. I, I've seen people going through trials for psilocybin um, where there's a resurrection or a renaissance of the psychedelic treatments, which are very useful for some patients. SSRIs and SNRIs are life-saving for some patients, right? But I think um, we have to use every tool in the appropriate way. Um, and we know with SSRIs or SNRIs, so when I say that, I guess for, for listeners, that's things like Prozac, the standard you know, medication pills that you would be told to go on, you'll get an effect after six weeks. And the thing is people are often left on these for life. Um, mm. And what I got taught was that really every six to 12 months, you should review that because major depressive disorder often will lift after that period of time. So if I see a patient and they've been on, you know, um, a standard, say Prozac for a year or two, and they're not improving, then I have to think, why are they not improving? Have we got the diagnosis right? And, you know, some people would say that 30% of very severe melancholic depression i'm talking the people who really are at risk of becoming suicide victims 30 percent could be bipolar disorder now i know in my earlier years um, as a doctor i didn't really understand bipolar mm. perhaps i even projected some form of stigma onto those patients because i remember as a junior registrar you know i remember a patient walking in who had bipolar disorder on like all these medications um, and I just was, it was confronting because I didn't actually know how to treat that condition. Um, I didn't know anything about those medications um, or even, even what that condition was. And certainly recently I've become aware, aware of the fact that it's actually a neurodegenerative condition. These mm. people will die 10 years earlier than other people. And their mental illness is because of basically inflammation in the brain, it's it's the sodium channels. It's like rapid firing across across um, cell membranes, and what's happening? Going back to that seventeen year translation into clinical practice, is I know there's lots of research happening, and people are saying fish oil is very good. You know, da -da -da, all this other stuff is good, but that research is going to take many years to translate into practice, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a well, it's a, yeah, it's a it's a really um, as we wait, I suppose I, I just query why um, I guess the medical establishment seems so divided. We've we've had decades of these drugs being prescribed um, ineffectually for a lot of people, um, and, and we have something like psychedelic medicine, which shows enormous promise, and yet the TGA is still yet to down schedule it to to an essay and and i i suppose as a lay person you know i, I look at this and i just yeah I, I guess i i can't understand why the establishment isn't beating down the door for more options as you say if you only have three tools in your toolkit which are approved for prescribing you know why wouldn't you want to expand that um 
but then when you talked earlier about how uh, medical knowledge doubles every seven years, I guess the medical establishment is still made up of a lot of very old school doctors who, you know, might show a reluctance. I think it's very, very complex, right? So we're talking about human behaviour, we're talking about power structures and why there isn't a revolution. Mm. And we're talking about technology that doesn't, maybe does and maybe doesn't exist. Now, um, there is no establishment, right? Mm. There's government bodies which regulate as lawyers are regulated or sound technicians are regulated, regulates doctors. So I, you know, and rightly so. I've seen a lot of rogue practice out there. And so certainly the unique thing about medicine is that patients are very vulnerable. Um, and so, yes, doctors are regulated heavily. Now, what the re heavy regulation does is it puts a lot of doctors into a position where they don't want to do anything that is going to um, be outside of the box that they imagine they've been put in. It's an mm. imaginary box, right? Mm. Because what happens is a lot of clinical practice becomes robotic. It's yeah. like, I learned this drug. This is what I prescribe. This is what I do because I don't get to think about my problem. Mm. right? Because we don't have a system where the government says, you know what? We want our physicians to lead innovation and we're going to create infrastructure to allow that. We're going to create a big, you know, we're going to create primary care practices where we're going to every week give you um, an evidence-based report um, summarizing what in Australia we have found are the new things for mental health. And we're going to give you a list of the practitioners who are providing that treatment. And we're going to compensate that financially. Or The problem is that doctors are in charge of medicine. Scientists are in charge of innovation. Government is in charge of regulation. And there's no... Uh, integration of those three very important parts so mm. scientists can't say oh my god this is an amazing therapy that can be used safely dr x why don't you for example if a scientist says wow i just discovered in six months cbd oil can significantly improve anxiety why don't you try this safe dose that we did you know the phase whatever this is the safe dose try it in your three patients and, and um, give us the data. We'll write a case report. We'll present it to the government. We'll say, hey, this needs to get on the PBS because, you know, kids with severe, you know, depression and suicidal ideation can have a very safe treatment instead of a tranquilizer. Da, da, da. But there isn't that process. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and I, I, you know, the regulators are always sort of the last ones in that chain to sort of have the, this, the final say. But yeah, I do just recall, um, you know, some of the work that Mind Medicine and, and others have been doing in, in lobbying for regulatory changes yeah. fell short not that long ago um, in, in seeking a, a down schedule, but I'm sure that decision will be mooted and, and revisited now that we have a, a new federal government. So fingers crossed for, you know, patient access to psychedelic medicine. It's certainly a topic where pretty interested in, in following along on this, this podcast, but, um, but yeah, just jumping back to cannabis. So um, what, what are the, in terms of, cause we might have, I know some of our listeners, um, you know, might've been prescribed medical cannabis for anxiety or other mental health conditions, but what are some of the, the things that as a, as a doctor, you have to 
consider when you're prescribing cannabis for, for a mental health condition? And I know that's very broad because it depends on the condition, I'm sure. But yeah, what are some general points? So the gen- I mean, the firstly, you want to know, is the patient stable or unstable? You know, what does that mean? Does that mean um, are they... You know, are they, do they have suicidal thoughts? Are they seeing things that aren't there? Is there a history of psychosis? All of that. And that's, you know, the pointy end, but it's not the majority of patients. Once that's kind of ruled out, you want to know that they're, you know, they've got good lung function, all of that stuff. So basically, other than that, um, so you asked a few things. So your question is, how does a doctor assess a patient? Or- yeah, and like just on that first point about whether they might be, um, you know, in a critical state i mean and needing acute care what what does that look like from the the prescriber's perspective do you just is it a no-go for for that person to have medical cannabis what what's your sort of depends on the condition right so um and it depends if the patient's um you know cannabis experienced or not so let's go through uh let's go through an example so um this is you know a similar example of a patient demographic that I come across. So you've got a 40 year old man who has for the last three, four months um, suffered what we would medically call melancholic depression. Okay. That's when the brain slows down. This person can't get out of bed. They wake up um, with tightness in their chest, dry mouth, and they just want to cry. They don't see any reason um, to live. There's nothing they would enjoy. They stop eating. They lose weight because, you know, they have no interest in eating. They have cognitive dysfunction. They can't even read a page on a book, right? So this patient comes and says, you know, doc, I've been using um, cannabis in the past and I've sometimes when it gets really bad, I have a little bit of THC. Um, And what does that do for you? Well, it allows me to actually get out of bed and have breakfast. And when I hear that as a doctor, um, then I would say, well, isn't that a good treatment? Yeah, absolutely. You've had no side effects. You've tried this before coming to me. I can give you a therapy that I, you and I agree no and no works, and I can make it safer for you. Yeah. So in that situation, it's easy because as a patient who has some experience and is telling me that there's been an improvement and I can walk them through how to do that safely. And I can, and because they've come to me now, I can obviously do all the other stuff like the blood test, the psychotherapy, all that stuff. Hmm. Um, Some other patients that I find really have benefited are my trauma patients, right? So, yeah. So often, for instance, um, you know, like for example, young 40 year old, um, young 40 year old, young 40 year old lady with a history of severe anxiety, unable to leave the house, right? Um, delving deep into that story, sexually abused as a child, right? Uh, and what happens in trauma, and particularly people who've gone through childhood abuse, is that it's almost as if the past is dragging them back, right? They can't actually live in the current moment. So they could, you know, they might have a nice job. They might have a family. They might have a house. But every day they're waking up and they, they're remembering either they're getting flashbacks or they're feeling those emotions of, you know, I'm not going to make it out of here. I'm not going to survive. And what I found that cannabis really does, and I don't fully understand how it does this, 
So what I feel like it does is it it almost dampens the stress response in the amygdala and the and the and the emotional centers in the brain. And once that traumatic emotion is lessened, I feel like what I'm witnessing is patients are able to access higher consciousness. And what that really is, is your cortex, right? We know when you get angry, upset, you can't think clearly, you can't use your higher functions. And so what um, I have found really useful for a lot of patients who've had childhood abuse is cannabis assisted therapy for that. So what they will do is either an oil or CBD or flower depends on the patient. They'll microdose that. Okay. And then we'll practice some mindfulness. So they'll go and, you know, sit on the beach and just feel the waves, feel the sand, be present in that moment, or they'll journal or they'll listen to music. And over time, what happens is it's like they've wired, rewired their brain to be able to be present and to be able to develop tools to um, live, you know, with that trauma. That's amazing. Some of the patients. It, it almost that, that that's kind of that parallels the, I guess the underlying method of action of how psychedelic medicines work, allowing somebody to actually step away from their trauma to some extent and view it almost in third person, and and have a break from it. Is that kind of? Yeah. So there's many parts of ourself and our consciousness, and a lot of people who practice who are psychotherapists will tell you that. For example, when um, I'm feel if I'm a patient who's got PTSD and I wake up and I feel I'm gonna die, I can't make it. That voice might even just be of the voice of that inner child of mine that was abused that every day felt like they weren't gonna make it. But what mm. happened is your brain, you know, their brain cut them off for that from that trauma so they could survive. So that when they get to adulthood and they are safe, all of those traumatic feelings and emotions then hit them. And that's why people, they drink and they use, they use cannabis for this. Mm. Use cannabis for this. We have, you know, lots of data. Um, but what we can do is help them do it properly. I have a, I think we're going to finish up soon, but I have an interesting anecdote a patient shared with me actually about a psychedelic trip, which I thought was fascinating. Mm. Um, so this was a patient who lots of abuse growing up um, from dad, very physically violent, always fell into bad relationships and couldn't understand her own patterns. It was very unclear to her. Um, what she did, so she was in a, a toxic relationship that she knew was bad for her. We always say, why can't these people leave? Um, and what she did one time is she basically prepared her house. She got some journaling material. She took some mushrooms and she reports it being the most painful experience of her life. It was almost as if she had this incredible um, grief and remorse. Um, she felt like it was being, it, she said that it was like being punched in the stomach with grief, the worst experience she ever had. And if she was near, you know, a cliff or something at the time, she would have thrown herself off. That's how bad the despair was. And um, I guess that's an important caution around people. Yes, psychedelics are good, but, you know, 
it can be deadly and I wouldn't advocate doing it outside of a clinical setting. But she had done that. And what became clear to her, though, is when she experienced, she experienced that pain and then it kind of passed through her and it became clear to her that what she was trying to do was attach to people because she'd never formed an attachment to her father. And that insight really just, boom, like circumvented years of therapy for someone to get that through their head. So I don't know how psychedelics do that, um, but that was very interesting for me to hear. Absolutely. Just inviting, uh, you know, an alternative perspective on self, although self is itself an illusion. Uh, but, um, yeah, it's, uh, no, it's fascinating. Um, really I, deep dived here at the end. All right, no, well, we, sorry. I mean, we, we're all consciousness is one, right? Yeah, exactly. Floating no, soup. That, that's... Um, you are me. <laughs> The, the one question I do have out of that is where do you, how do you grapple with, I guess the, the major thing that we hear out of, um, you know, the downside, let's say of cannabis, for example, is it's apparent propensity to induce psychosis or, you know, schizophrenia or these types of things. But yet I see cannabis listed as a treatment for skin, schizophrenia and anxiety and paranoia in some yeah. scenarios. Um, that's probably the last question I'd have from uh, from the doctor. I don't really know if it does. And I don't think anyone can really say that it does, right? Because I think there's too many confounding factors. Just as a clinician, the patients who come to me with heavy history of cannabis use, not doing it because they have a, a great life and everything's great and they just want to get stoned every day. It's because they've found something that has allowed them to self-medicate severe pain, trauma, low brain chemicals. They're really suffering, right? So when you have a population that already has all of those things and then they're using cannabis, like how do you separate it out? Mm -hmm. um, so look, does cannabis cause psychosis? Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. One of the most common can, you know, skin treatments we give to teenagers, Roaccutane for acne can cause psychosis, you know, like so lots of things can cause that. Um, I don't really, I don't know how important that question is. I think what's important is what do we do for people who suffer a psychotic mental illness and how do we research cannabis more to make it safe for them? Because now we can we can use cannabis in a more sophisticated way. Mm. And we're seeing the benefit in mental illness. And how do we not leave out people who have bipolar and schizophrenia and really need more new therapies than anyone else, right? Absolutely. My theory, sorry, my theory on psychosis um, from a few things I read is that, especially in children, is it seems like the brain is almost creating some sort of endogenous chemical to provide an, you know, an internal anesthetic from pain, right? Um, it's very interesting when you see people who um, have become psychotic, especially if they've had a depression that's developed into a psychotic depression. <laughs> and there's my son. <laughs> so I think that that's the end of that but anyway it was so nice riffing with you guys i really enjoyed it no thank, <laughs> thank you the chains um we uh we're very grateful for um yeah for all of your your insights and yeah um really i, I feel like we could chat for hours but um won't hold you up from uh yeah attending to um, mum duties <laughs>
So yeah, thank you very much for your wisdom. And um, yeah, I'm sure maybe we'll get you back on the show in another time, but otherwise um, I'll just be speaking to you generally. (laughs) I just want to say, I think we're really at a really important point in time for mental illness. We've got exciting therapies. We're seeing people really suffer. And I think, um, you know, we really need to come together on this and it's something that everybody suffers from. And I think we really need to come together and, and push through as much as we can and, and really have the courage to be innovative for our kids. You know, if we're not going to come up with better treatments now, then when is it going to happen? Exactly. They'll just inherit the same system we're all living under now. So it actually is, it's time for people to, yeah, be bold, be brave and actually, you know, open up this world of medicine to um yeah to the next generation and us of course um (laughs) beautifully said guys excellent all right thanks so much the change will uh we'll speak soon see ya thanks